Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Robert, Dave and Edward B, Robert's twain, James 1, 2, 3, then Jamesy 4 and Jamesy 5, then Mary, Queen of Scots arrives. That's a rhyme that, well, I have to confess that I made up, as if you couldn't guess, about the Scottish monarchs from Robert the Bruce through to Mary, Queen of Scots, because I'm deviating from Willy Willy Harry Stee this episode to look at what was going on in Scotland in order to tee up James VI of Scotland coming down south of the border and taking over the throne as James I of England. Now, perhaps when I brought the English, well, I should say the British monarchy up to date with Charles III, I can carry on and and maybe jump back in time and do the Scottish monarchs. But I have to say that it's pretty bloody complicated Um, It would be great to think that the Scottish did it better than the English, that they were better organised and more civilised, and it wasn't a story of competing noblemen trying to kill each other and take the throne for themselves. Um, But if anything, it was worse in Scotland. It was chaos. And, you know, I've looked back through it to see if I can kind of make sense of it all but there was a lot going on a lot of different kings a lot of different uh, dynasties but Robert the Bruce and if god and I mean that's going right back to Edward the first time Edward the first as hammer of the Scots the sort of brave heart era when Robert the Bruce took over but it did seem to herald us a slightly more stable run there were a couple of Bruce's and then the Stuart's came to the throne. But in terms of this series, which is about, uh, well, up to this point, it's about the English kings up to Queen Elizabeth. She was our last English queen. If you remember, or if you listened to it, we had David Mitchell on talking about his book Unruly, which he called very much a history of the English kings and queens. And it ends with Elizabeth, because after that, They are British, James I being Scottish. But when James comes to the throne, it unites the thrones of England and Scotland. In England's favour, it has to be said, people in England probably at this time still carry on thinking of their king as the English king. And that has really much persisted to this day, although... After Elizabeth, they weren't technically English kings. They were British kings. And Charles is king of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. But we think of them still as English monarchs. And the English royal family and the Scottish royal family uh, get linked up when James IV of Scotland marries Margaret Tudor 
in 1503, Margaret Tudor being the daughter of Henry VII of England, our first Welsh king, our first Tudor king. She is therefore the sister of Henry VIII. And Henry arranges this marriage for her to James IV in the hope of keeping the Scots off his back. The Scottish and the French have been sort of age-old traditional enemies of the English and they have this arrangement between them known by the Scots as the Old Alliance which means that whenever one of them has trouble with the English the other one sort of comes to their aid. So we see quite often if the English have to send an army over to France for one reason or another then the Scots will take advantage of this and invade over the border and send armies in to attack the north of England. We've seen how in England these two families, the Percys and the Nevilles, are kind of in charge up in the north and it's their job to stop the Scots from getting any further. Likewise, if there is trouble with the Scots and the English uh, have forces and money, whatever, committed up in the north, then the French will take the opportunity to have a go at um, taking back English territories in France or even occasionally attempting to mount some kind of invasion of their own. So Henry is hoping that by marrying his sister to the Scottish king, he can create a stable alliance. But it doesn't last long. These things never do. I don't know why kings and queens carried on with this process of marrying their female members off for political reasons because these alliances these treaties never held and pretty soon uh, henry and the scots were were fighting again but james the fourth and margaret tudor had six children the oldest surviving boy being another james and he becomes james the fifth and he was married twice to Two powerful French women, first to Madeleine of Valois and secondly to Mary of Guise. So I've jumped ahead a little bit in James V's life. Let's just go back to when he's born. So James V had been one of those boy kings. He came to the throne when he was still a child, a very small child in his case, only 17 months old. And the Scots had the same tradition as the English, uh, where the country would be run by a regency. Originally, at the heart of this was his mother, Margaret Tudor, uh, as well as one of his relatives, John Stuart, the Duke of Albany. And as James's father, James IV, had died fairly young, his widow, Margaret, married again to a guy called Archibald Douglas, the sixth Earl of Angus, uh, who seems to have been a bit of a sort of typical uh, wicked step-uncle who didn't treat James very well and James didn't really like him. And as soon as he was old enough, he exiled Archie Douglas uh, and confiscated all his family lands. So uh, James... I guess you could say he was taking no prisoners. He's, he, he came in hard when he uh, was old enough to be running the country. And it was under James V that Protestantism started to take hold in Scotland. And when Henry VIII fell out with the Pope over trying to get his marriage to Catherine of Aragon annulled, James was actually put into quite a powerful position because he was able to make deals with the Pope as a potential ally against Henry. And we saw how Henry, in his early reign, before he fell out with the Pope, was made defender of the faith. Then James V in Scotland was also made defender of the faith, the new defender of the faith in Britain, as Henry was no longer the defender of the faith. And James V seems to have been an OK king. He was accused by some of uh, being avaricious, just as he had started with his stepfather exiling him and taking his lands, he was fond of appropriating lands from his lords. But some people see him as a sort of Robin Hood figure, taking lands and money from the nobles and distributing it and treating the ordinary people quite well. Um, he was known by some as the poor man's king. And who knows how things may have gone in Scotland and in British history and all if he hadn't died young. The Stuart monarchs had an unfortunate habit of dying young. James was in his early 30s, and this was following a battle with the English, the Battle of Solway Moss, uh, where the English defeated 
the Scottish army. I mean, what had happened is his mother, Margaret Tudor, had died. So he didn't feel that he had to hold back. He didn't feel any responsibility to the English. He wasn't going to upset mummy. Uh, and he made the mistake of attacking the English. Um, this started quite well. The Scots won the Battle of Haddon Rig, but then, as I say, they were pretty badly mullered at the Battle of Solway Moss. Uh, James didn't die from injuries sustained in the battle, but he died soon afterwards. It seemed he'd had some kind of recurring illness for the last few years, some form of pox which is a sort of fairly catch-all term. Uh, but in the end, it looks like he was done in by our old favourite, dysentery, um, or perhaps cholera. But anyway, he was young, and he died leaving only one child, Mary. Mary, who became Queen of Scots. And she came to the throne when she was even younger than her father had been. She was only six days old. So once again, we go through this process of the Regency government, which always seems to lead to conflict. People trying to take control, people trying to push other people around. Um, and then when the child is old enough, uh, they come to the throne and, and settle old scores. And the two powerful people at the heart of Mary Queen of Scots Regency, when she was a child was a mother, Mary of Guise, and James Hamilton, the Earl of Arran, who, after Mary, was next in line to the throne. So he was keeping pretty close. No doubt it passed through his mind occasionally that he might um, perhaps smother Mary in her bed before she got old enough. But he doesn't seem to have openly misbehaved. And when Mary was only six years old, she was betrothed to the French prince, the French heir to the throne, the Dauphin, Francis. And she lived there at the French court in Paris for the next 13 years. Uh, one of the main reasons she was sent to France was to avoid what was going on between Scotland and England. Henry VIII had been very keen to marry his son, Edward, who became Edward VI, he was very keen to marry him off to Mary, Queen of Scots, again, hoping for this union between the two countries, but also knowing very much that as Edward was on the male side, there was a chance that he would get the upper hand and become King of Scotland. And the Scots weren't stupid. They didn't like the idea of this at all. So Henry sent successive armies up to try and force the Scots um, in a process that became known as the rough wooing, which is fairly black humour, I suppose. And, you know, I don't think this is the best way to try and woo a young lady by sending soldiers up to attack her country. So Mary stayed in France and became quite Frenchified. French culture and French religion and, and life at the French court were a huge influence on her. She almost preferred to use French to English. There's been a couple of times in other episodes where, where I've had to sort of uh, do a quote as if from Mary, Queen of Scots, and you think, well, should I do it with a Scottish accent? And then you think, oh, maybe I should do it actually in an English accent, um, or perhaps I should do it in a French accent. And I'm not, really not quite sure what accent um, she used when she spoke. As I say, France had this big influence on Mary, uh, and the French court was still Catholic. There was a Protestant movement in France, spurred on by Calvin, and French Protestants were pretty much all lumped together under the title of Huguenots. And Mary was resolutely Catholic when she was living in France, and she pretty much kept that Catholic faith for the rest of her life. Now, unlike Elizabeth and Lady Jane Grey, Mary doesn't seem to have had this sort of intellectual education, this great humanist education of art and literature and philosophy. She learnt the requisite languages, but she had more of a sort of courtly education, um, singing and dancing and singing and dancing and appreciation of art and, and playing music. So I don't think we could see a Mary as being anything close to an intellectual, like certainly Lady Jane Grey was, and uh, to a slightly to a lesser extent, Elizabeth. So perhaps a more conventional, uh, upper-class female upbringing of the time. And she did actually marry Francis, the Dauphin, 
when she was 16. And when he came to the throne, she became Queen of France. So not only Mary, Queen of Scots, but also Mary, Queen of France as a consort queen, uh, which means she doesn't have the full powers of a ruling queen. But she was, for a while, sitting on the throne next to her husband, Francis. Unfortunately, the frail and sickly Francis only ruled France for a year before getting an ear infection that developed into an abscess in his brain that killed him, at which point Mary became a young widow and was sent back to Scotland by her powerful and ruthless mother-in-law, Catherine of Medici. There was a usual political skullduggery and dynastic infighting going on at the French court. Catherine of Medici wanted to take full control and didn't want Mary, Queen of Scots, hanging around confusing matters. Mary had been living in France since she was five and she knew little of Scotland. She was not at all prepared for dealing with the complicated political situation there, which was fraught with danger. And she finds that she's returning to a much more Protestant country than the one she had left. The Protestants under people like the lovely John Knox um, had taken control. And as we've seen, John Knox was leading this movement, questioning whether women should be allowed to rule. And he was behind a strong Scottish movement to try to remove Mary from the throne. So she had to work pretty hard to keep everybody happy and to keep her place as queen. Uh, she's very much having the same fights and struggles that the English Queen Mary had, and obviously also Elizabeth, particularly as Mary remains a Catholic in what is now, as I say, a Protestant country. So she's having a pretty tough time of it. And the question of marriage and succession is as much of a burning question in Scotland as it is in England under Elizabeth. Uh, Mary has to tread very carefully. Who is she going to marry? What's going to happen with the succession? Obviously, she needs to have a son. Now, down in England, Elizabeth has a few ideas and makes a few suggestions, um, thinking that it would be good to get Mary married to someone English. Um, and she particularly promotes um, her own favourite, the man she'd sort of led on and spurned, Robert Dudley, the Earl of Leicester. She thinks this would be great. She would have her own man in the Scottish court. But Dudley is not keen on the marriage and Mary is not keen on the marriage. And the Scottish lords and people not too keen on it. They'd much rather she married another Scot or, or, or probably preferably one of these European princes. But Mary, for some reason, sets her sights on a relative of hers, Henry Stuart, uh, Lord Darnley, and he and Mary are both uh, grandchildren of Margaret Tudor. I mean, I, I suppose in the end, maybe she just, just fell in love with him. But anyway, Mary decides this is the man for her. They get married. Darnley's not a particularly popular guy. Uh, I think anybody who married uh, Mary was going to be not popular in, in Scotland because of all the rivalry that's going on up there. They seem to have been reasonably happy to start with, but the, the, the marriage starts to sour. It starts to go wrong. Darnley doesn't seem to have been a particularly nice guy. He was seen as being quite arrogant, slightly out of control, not very reliable, very vain, a jealous man, a heavy drinker. And it's all came to a head when Darnley gets very, very jealous of Mary's relationship with her friend and secretary, this Italian nobleman called David Rizzio, or probably Riccio in the, uh, in the Italian. He's a very handsome, charismatic young man, very close to Mary. And when Mary gets pregnant, there are a lot of rumours going round that the real father is not Lord Darnley. It is David Rizzio, her secretary. <laughs> And Darnley, being the sort of man that he is, uh, can't cope with this. Now, you would think people might behave in a civilised manner. 
it's been a thousand years since we were having problems with the Vikings. And it's been 500 years since the Norman invasion. So we've had all the, the horrors and the violence of the Wars of the Roses, of people smashing each other to pieces. Now everybody is dressed in this elegant manner, uh, beautifully turned out, singing madrigals and doing that uh, irritating dancing that they do in historical films of the era, where they kind of hold one hand up in the air clasp your partner and kind of prance about a bit you'd think that people would behave in a civilized manner but no they don't one evening mary is having dinner with rizzio and lord darnley comes in and it kind of unfolds like a scene from eastenders you slag leave him alone leave david out of it please i've done nothing but anyway, so Darnley accuses Mary of, of having an affair with, with Rizzio, um, threatens him. Rizzio hides behind Mary, at which point Darnley's supporters charge in and it turns into very much a scene from Game of Thrones. So Darnley's friends come in, a group of noblemen led by the third Lord Ruthven, Patrick Ruthven. They grab Rizzio from behind Mary they hold a gun to Mary's head to stop her from interfering and between them they stab Rizzio 57 times and Darnley makes no attempt to cover this up how can he he's done this in front of Mary and some of her noble women he's got his group of friends there you see Darnley in marrying Mary had thought that he would be king that he would have ultimate power uh, Mary's been holding him back on this but he thinks he's still the number one man in the country. He's going to get away with this. But uh, it doesn't go well. People don't like what's happened. He then sort of sort of seems to switch sides and he goes on the run with Mary saying, oh, sorry, love, I got a bit carried away there. And they go on a run for a while before returning to Edinburgh and kind of patching things up with an ability. But, but really, uh, the marriage goes from bad to worse after this, as, as it would. If your husband stabs your best friend 57 times, you're not going to take it well. And Lord Darley himself is murdered not long after. Mary is away. Lord Darnley is at home. Two barrels of dynamite are put in the building and it's blown up. Darnley's not killed in the blast. He manages to get out into the garden with one of his servants uh, wearing only his nightshirt. But he is there apprehended by his assassins who uh, they probably smothered him. There are no external marks on his body. There, there turns out to be some internal uh, damage done by the explosion. But it's pretty much accepted that he is smothered or strangled in his garden. And now one of the men involved in this assassination is a guy called James Hebben, the fourth Earl of Bothwell. And there was a sort of fairly half-hearted trial. By this point, Darnley was not popular at all, uh, and he had lost any support that he really had. So his murderers kind of got away with it. But then, scandalously, Mary, Queen of Scots, marries Bothwell only a month after he's been acquitted of Darnley's murder. And this does not go down well in Scotland. This does not go down well in England. Elizabeth sends a letter saying, how can you marry this person? Everybody knows murdered your last husband. And Bothwell seems to be an even more unreliable figure than Darnley. When we had Tracy Borman on talking about Queen Elizabeth I, she said what many people say, that... Elizabeth was ruled by her head and that Mary was ruled by her heart. Elizabeth studiously never married. She never got involved in any sort of scandalous bedroom antics. Mary did the opposite and it didn't go well for her. And now the Protestant Scottish lords rise up against Mary. They call themselves the Confederate lords. And these Confederate lords raise an army against Mary, who tries to raise an army of her own, but, but before the two sides can come to battle, Mary's army kind of melts away and she is deserted and she is captured and she is dragged back to Edinburgh where crowds of people are waiting to scream abuse at her. Adulterous murderer. And she's locked up in Loch Leven Castle where she sadly miscarried twins. And then she was forced to abdicate in favour of her son, 
the one she had by Lord Darnley, or perhaps by the Italian secretary Rizzio, the one she was pregnant with when Darnley murdered Rizzio. But that son is James, and James is proclaimed king again. He's barely just been born. Bothwell is exiled. He kind of goes on the run round Europe where various people are after him. And he ends up in Denmark, of all places, where he's arrested, uh, chucked in prison, and he languishes there for some time, slowly going mad before he dies. Back in Scotland, Mary manages to escape from her imprisonment, helped by the brother of the man who owns the castle she's been locked up in. She realises she does have some support. She tries once again to raise an army. Uh, This time they do get as far as battle, but uh, the Battle of Langside, she's defeated and she escapes to England, where she hopes that Queen Elizabeth will look after her and help her to regain the throne. But Elizabeth really isn't sure what to do. This is a hugely important point in her reign. How will she treat Mary? She doesn't want to look like she's treating her harshly, but this is a sister queen. But she knows that Mary is a threat because Mary has a legitimate claim on the English throne through Margaret Tudor. She is a descendant of Henry VII. So Elizabeth herself is always struggling to maintain her authority and Mary just massively confuses and complicates matters. And so Elizabeth has her put under house arrest. She's not incarcerated, she's not chained to a wall, she's allowed to go about her daily life. She has all her clothes and possessions brought down from Scotland. She moves around quite a lot from castle to castle, but... A close eye is kept on her. Walsingham, Elizabeth's sort of chief spymaster, has spies in Mary's household. He intercepts her letters. Mary is using a cipher to write to people with with the more political letters. But Walsingham is getting them all and reading them. He knows exactly what's going on and he's reporting back to Elizabeth. And through her reign, Elizabeth has to contend with these various Catholic uprisings in England who want to put Mary, Queen of Scots, a Catholic queen, on the throne and get rid of Elizabeth. So one of the first things Elizabeth does is she sets up this court of inquiry into what exactly happened with Lord Darnley when he was murdered. And she has the current regent of Scotland brought down, the leader of the Confederate Lords. And this is Mary's half-brother, James Stuart, Earl of Moray, who's the illegitimate son of Mary's father, King James V, and is currently running Scotland. So there's this big conference or inquiry, this investigation into who was responsible for the murder of Darnley. And who has the right to rule Scotland? Is it Lord Moray and the Confederate Lords, or is it Mary? It's a political act more than a legal act, and it is left inconclusive. The court doesn't come down either way, except to say that Elizabeth will keep charge of Mary and the Confederate Lords can continue in the Regency in Scotland, preparing and polishing the crown for when Mary's son James is old enough. But, unfortunately for Mary, she becomes the focus of discontent in England, particularly Catholic discontent. There are many Catholic lords still who don't like Elizabeth, would like to get rid of her, and would like a Catholic queen on the throne, and Mary, Queen of Scots, is the ideal candidate. And this goes on for 20 years. Mary is Elizabeth's prisoner, for 20 years, half her life. Elizabeth tries to keep her at arm's length. She won't have anything to do with her. The two of them never once met in their entire lives. And unfortunately for Mary, over and over again, people are challenging Elizabeth, trying to get rid of her, trying to replace her with poor Mary, who most of the time has nothing to do with any of these plots. And eventually, Elizabeth has had enough. Her advisers are all telling her the same thing. Get rid of Mary once and for all. As long as she's alive, she will be a threat to your throne, to your authority. There's a final plot. Uh, Letters are produced from Mary that implicate her in this. She says she's able to be tried for treason. And Elizabeth organises with a guy called William Davison, one of her privy council, to deal with Mary. And 
Mary is executed. She has her head cut off. Takes three strikes. The first strike missed her neck completely and hit her in the back of the head. The second cut through most of her neck but left a bit behind. And then the third one, well, it was more of a slice, really, to get rid of the last few pieces of sinew. And then when her head fell into the basket to a cry of God save the Queen... It was fished out and held up by the hair, although it turned out to be a red wig. And the, the head fell down again when it was brought up. It was discovered that Mary had short grey hair. She had been considered a great beauty in her lifetime. A pretty princess uh, who grew up to be a beautiful queen um, with her long red hair and delicate features. But after the execution, Elizabeth claimed, I, I never told Davison to execute her. I simply said to, to, to sort her out. There are echoes of the murder of Thomas a Becket in Canterbury Cathedral under the instructions of Henry II, who sort of did or didn't send knights to kill him. Um, it was pretty clear that it was an execution warrant, but Elizabeth is trying to excuse herself of any blame of killing her fellow queen, and in fact, before Mary was executed, she had um, had a quiet word with the guy who was looking after her, saying, you know, is there some way you could engineer that she gets food poisoning or something and uh, I don't have to actually execute her? But this guy says, no, no, I'm not going to have that on my conscience. This is down to you, Elizabeth. And it was down to her. And it remains a central, very controversial part of her reign. But it's happened over and over again. When you have pretenders to the throne when you have rival claimants to the throne the only way to deal with it is to kill them to execute them so that was a not very happy life of mary queen of scots who became queen of france for a while but never became queen of england and she died when she was only 45 years old and join me after the break when we have john guy back to talk about mary ryan reynolds here from Mint mobile with the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Okay, so to help me make sense of Mary, Queen of Scots, I'm delighted to have back the historian John Guy, who was a guest on my two episodes about Henry VIII, alongside his wife and occasional co-writer, Julia Fox. And towards the end of our chat, John mentioned that he had been historical advisor on the most recent film about Mary, Queen of Scots from 2018, which was also based on his book of the same name. Uh, that was the film with Shawsha Ronan as Mary and Margot Robbie as Queen Elizabeth. So, John, we talked a bit about that. And I have to confess that one of my reasons for wanting to give Mary her own episode was so that I could get you back on to talk a little bit more about that process. Uh, and so, I mean, how do you render historical facts into fictional film entertainment? The, the attempt here was actually to stick largely to the non-fiction that was the plan. Right. There was just one exception. And that was made clear to me at the very beginning of the, the, the process that because this was, you know, when all is said and done, a theatrical entertainment. Yes. For dramatic purposes, at some point, the two protagonists have to meet. Yes, as you say, to, to, to dramatise their relationship, to have them meet and talk to each other. Now, of course, they didn't meet, in fact... Though there were several occasions, there were actually certainly two uh, and possibly three occasions when a meeting was mooted. And on the first of those occasions, 
I mean, they got to the point of hiring um, you know, the equivalent of Travelix UK to change the the, the money. <laughs> the meeting was to be New, New York. All the provisions had been, um, you know, the, the sort of foods, victuals had been organised. At the last minute, it got cancelled for a um, largely contingent reason. And then um, Mary always wanted to get that meeting set up again. Now, when it came to the movie, which was, as you say, um, based on the book, and to a very large extent, it was made clear that they would need to meet and they were going to do this near the end. I mean, rather like in, in Schiller's play or, or Donizetti's uh, opera. Mm-hmm. After the book was published, but at the time the film was happening, I had actually discovered a, a new document, new evidence had come to light, actually at an auction uh, in 2010. And it was an agreement by Elizabeth that she would meet Mary's secretary you know, just two years, really, just over two years before Mary was executed. So right at the end of the story, with a view to a possible settlement and a reconciliation. Now, that's where you get to the, if you like, the central motif of the film, because the book put forward, which was, you know, at the time, 2004, quite a revolutionary idea, that the idea that Mary and Elizabeth were mortal enemies from the start of the story uh, my um, reading was that it was completely false. They were anything but mortal enemies at the beginning. They called each other sister. They were both, it might whimsically be said, fully paid up members of the Women in Monarchs Trade Union. They were both young. <laughs> um, uh, Elizabeth had come to the throne at 25. Mary had taken up her Scottish throne at, at, at 18. They were infinitely curious about each other. They each believed They'd been called their, um, by God to rule their country. Each was the only real one who could understand what it was like to be in the other's shoes. So, you know, there was a lot connecting these women. And that central motif of the book was reinforced by the fact that I discovered quite early in my research that what Mary actually wanted was a settlement, a pact with Elizabeth. That came, again, on almost three occasions. Uh, she came very close to achieving that. So the idea that this was really a story about a relationship between two young-ish women rulers. Yes, they came from opposing religions. Yes, they came from different countries. Yes, there were issues, all sorts of political issues affecting Europe at that time, which sort of essentially drove a wedge between them. But the problem here, the problem here throughout the whole of the story was the men, the councillors, the nobles, those who believed they had a stake in what, what was going to happen in monarchy. And of course, um, it's just, misogyny is the, is the wrong word. But the idea of a woman ruler in the 16th century, you know, is pretty horrific. And there were quite a few, actually. I mean, not just in England. I mean, in France, Catherine de Medici became a regent. And so this was the age, if you like, of women rulers. In a nutshell, the nature of that discord between the queen and the women advisors is that the male advisors, their idea of a defense of female monarchy was that a woman ruler was acceptable only if she had her ministers and councillors or parliaments or judges to tell her what to do. Mm. Uh, A woman may rule as a magistrate, yet must obey as a wife. And, of course, the way that you kept a woman um, ruler in control was to marry her off to a bloke, (laughs) and then the bloke would, would essentially become king. And this is why Elizabeth strenuously doesn't want to get married, because that that process will happen. You're absolutely right. I mean, yes, Elizabeth, she had it hot early in the reign for Robert Dudley, who was married. And of course, that was scandalous, even in the midst of what was at the time, actually, although most people have forgotten about it now, was a sort of pretty much a sex scandal. Um, you know, what were they up to in her privy chamber, you know, all at night or in Dudley's chamber Mm. very later or indeed all in all the night. But even as that was going on, Elizabeth was saying to Parliament, you know, that that, that she'd be very satisfied if, um, you know, after reigning for so many years, her tombstone said that she'd lived and died a virgin. She understood because she had had the experience as a teenager. She'd been she'd come up the rough way, the hard way. She had had adolescence experiences, which meant that you know, her father killed her mother. Her stepfather, the last of Henry's queens, Catherine Parr, married um, her true love after Henry's death, Thomas Seymour, who became Mm. Elizabeth's stepmother. Seymour tried it on with Elizabeth, the young Elizabeth, molested her, certainly went to see her early in the morning in bed, touched her up, Mm. uh, all that sort of stuff. 
the most uh, mortifying experience Elizabeth ever had was when she was 15, uh, when it was strongly rumoured that she was pregnant by her stepfather. Um, Elizabeth was actually briefly in the tower, and then she was kept uh, under close um, house arrest at Woodstock in Oxfordshire for the best part of a year. Uh, and later in the reign, again, she was for a second time suspected of treason and plotting. And her half-sister really wanted to um, put her on trial for treason. She just wriggled out of that because there was no absolute firm proof, but there was a very great deal of circumstantial hmm. uh, evidence. So she knew about men. And she says, actually, she'd been deeply affected by her adolescent experiences. You know, she said, I know the inconstancy of the people of England, how they ever mislike the present government and have their eyes fixed on the person that's next to succeed. She had good experience of herself and her and, and her tribulations in my sister's time. Uh, and then she said, no prince's revenues be so great that they are able to satisfy the insatiable cupidity of men. <laughs> and it was Elizabeth's own chief minister, William Cecil. He was determined to call the shots. And this is happening in Scotland, too. You could parallel all of this in, in Scotland, where it's even more sort of, if you like, disorderly, because the nobles are at sixes and sevens. There's been a religious revolution. The crown doesn't have the sort of money that the English crown has. So these two queens are basically doing a juggling act, trying to basically keep their heads above the parapet and keep themselves in power with all these scheming men. Mm. Elizabeth has decided she's not going to solve this problem by getting married to get a bloke. Mary is, is a different sort of woman. She takes the different approach. She thinks that probably you should marry because without a husband, you can't have a son. And without a son, you can't guarantee the succession. Yes. And the succession in a dynastic monarchy is the most important issue. When Mary decides to marry Lord Darnley uh, in 1565, she actually says not to marry. You know, it cannot be for me to defer it long. Many incommodities ensue. But of course, the trouble is that husbands demand to be king. And that's exactly what Darnley does. He, you know, he wants to LBU aside and ministers and nobles quarrel and rebel. And you get the sort of thing that happened in exactly what happened in, it happened in Scotland. So as far as the question that you asked me at, at the beginning is concerned, the whole of the backbone, if you like, the architectural backbone, the story arc, the conceptual core of this film was this tension over a woman ruler in the 16th century over this tension between the men and, the, if you like, the, the male politicos, underpinned also by religious differences. Mm. And the urge, the, 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 the almost primal urge of these two women to meet and to talk woman to woman and to settle their differences. So for that reason, I thought that it was basically OK uh, to have the theatrical meeting. Yes, and as we said before, it works much better dramatically and in terms of telling the story, I guess, so that rather than having them write letters to each other or, or whatever, we can see them together and really understand the dynamic. But so, I mean, so why did Elizabeth in the end refuse to ever meet Mary once she'd come to England? Is it on the urging of her advisers or, or was it because she wanted to keep her arm's length? She does want to, if you like, pull wires. I mean, Cecil just simply believed that England had suzerainty over the kings of Scotland. Well, that was it. Elizabeth could just basically barge in. But of course, you've got um, in Scotland in the 16th century, partly underpinned by uh, the Protestant Revolution uh, and in Parliament in Scotland. You've got almost the beginning of a sort of, not exactly, but a sort of early Scottish nationalism. Mm. Uh, and certainly Scottish identity at that time is sort of defined by anti-Englishness for the most part. Because remember the axis, the political axis in Europe at that time, as far as Scotland is concerned, is the old alliance with France. Mm. France and Scotland are very pally. Obviously, the uh, Protestant Revolution in Scotland sort of upended that to some extent. But still, the, the cultural norm is pro-French and anti-English, with one or two notable exceptions how times change exactly so <laughs> where these sort of cosmic international affairs are concerned and dynastic affairs are concerned elizabeth believes that you go first with dynasty with hereditary right with blood if you like of the old aristocratic view the old monarchic view of things and mary does too they they really do believe they are not accountable to parliament they're accountable only to to god I mean, Elizabeth, right to the end of her reign, you know, thought that it's one reason why she was just out of touch with the times. 
um, you know, by the end of her reign and why mm. at the time most people wanted, frankly, to get rid of her and get in James I, who you know, looked a little bit more promising. Mm. Well, I mean, it's interesting bringing in James there that in the end, despite everything that went wrong for Mary and what happened to her, she was the winner. She exactly so. She won. Because Elizabeth's line, the Tudor line, died out with her and every monarch since has been descended from Mary, Queen of Scots. Mary was the winner because she was absolutely right. You know, you did have to marry and settle the suit. Which Elizabeth never did, uh, and as despite her whole reign being dominated by the question of the succession and her ministers trying to persuade her to settle it, I guess. And she never would. And in fact, actually, something that I knew from um, the, the French ambassador's dispatches when I wrote the book in 20. Uh, 15, um, called Elizabeth of Forgotten Years. I knew then from de Beaumont, the French ambassador's dispatches, that the story that Elizabeth recognised James on her deathbed by a gesture or a wave of the hand, mm. you know, whatever it is, or a grunt or whatever, was complete fiction, which was invented about 10 or 12 days uh, after um, Elizabeth's death in order to cover mm. that big gap between Elizabeth actually dying and James you know, he couldn't just go to Edinburgh Airport and fly down to Heathrow. <laughs> he had to travel down. You know, and it took him it took him weeks to travel down in slow in sort of slow motion with a large entourage. You know, stopping and greeting all mm. the local notables and then coming down south. They were terribly worried about some sort of coup. So Mary, she manages to secure the succession, but she did make some pretty rotten choices of husband. The blokes turned out to be disasters in terms of um, <laughs> not just sociability, but also um, in, in terms, of, if you like, sort of political sense. My research showed that Mary was much more politically astute, far more politically astute than people gave her credit for. Different, she's a different sort of woman. She has different emphases. Um, you know, she's generous. Um, she's she's not distant at all. So the idea that Elizabeth ruled by the head and Mary by the heart is. Um... It's nonsense. And I mean, in fact, actually, I'll give you one example which completely and destroys the idea that Elizabeth ruled from the head and Mary ruled from the heart. I just mentioned a moment ago in response to your question that hmm. Elizabeth did try to control Mary indirectly. Uh, and they sort of saw Scotland as a sort of thief of the English state. And one yeah. way she tried to control Mary indirectly was to influence her choice of husband. And when Mary wanted to marry after she returned from France to Scotland, She'd been married, of course, in France to the Dauphin who became Francis II, yeah. but he died and then she returned to Scotland. When she chose to marry ag again, um, Elizabeth tried to get her married to none other than Robert Dudley, her own discarded mother, and really engineered for that. But it isn't just that. What she actually wanted was for Mary to marry Dudley. They would both come and live in the south of England and go up and down the Thames you know, to Elizabeth's palaces. Uh, when Elizabeth wasn't there, Dudley would still be there you know, for Elizabeth, but he would have Mary in tow. And it was a completely lunatic idea. I mean, what woman of, of honour or spirit would accept that, apart from the politics uh, of it all? And Mary absolutely exploded. She said, does it stand with my honour to marry my sister's subject? You know, and there's in the, in the, when we were doing this um, take in the, it was down in Pinewood, uh, Sir Sharon, you know, basically declaring this line. I think this is straight out of the documents. It's straight out of my book. It's straight out of the doc. So many of the lines in that film were straight out of the document. Uh -huh. If you were going to make a Hollywood movie, because let's face it, a Hollywood movie is a theatrical entertainment. But if yeah. you're going to make, if you were going to make a Hollywood movie out of that book, I actually don't think you could do it any better. Well, excellent. I mean, for once, I can encourage my listeners to to go and watch a film that's actually historically accurate yeah, apart from the you know the slight sort of digression at the end and this sort of uh, i mean as you could call it proto-feminist aspect is also historically accurate mary has been much maligned by men and this tension with the men is absolutely based on the sources and if it's revolutionary if like the wikipedia readers of old well that's because the history that had come down to us had all been written by the winners, by the English, uh, yeah. uh, and it had been written by the Protestants, you know, who basically thought that any sort of Catholic ruler was a sort of catastrophe and um, just basically had to be got rid of. So Mary was the victim of spin doctors. And I mean, with Cecil, you know, Cecil was a master of po politics, absolute master, because he read Cicero and he knew that what mattered in politics was not just what you believed, which you could keep private, or what you wanted to do, which you could keep to yourself, but how you appeared 
how you appeared in public. And he postured as the Queen's loyal servant, you know, the basically the humble bureaucrat. I mean, Mary, Queen of Scots, he couldn't call her Mary. He called her SQ, uh, by an acronym, the Scottish Queen. Like actors calling Macbeth the Scottish play. Couldn't bear to mention her name. The only good Mary was the dead one. He actually says that. He writes it down. You know, he gets up in the morning. And you remember that old film, American Beauty, where there's a, yes. a realtor who sort of gets up in the morning and does this sort of little sort of ritual, this sort of well, not quite company dance, but this sort of ritual. <laughs> I've got to sell a house today. I've got to sell a house today. Cecil gets out of bed and says, I've got to kill the Queen of Scots. I've got to kill the Queen of Scots. <laughs> On his tombstone, which he designed himself, which is in Stamford Parish Church, he's got this classic phrase where, you know, he says his achievement was to defend the Queen's safety and the security of the state. And by that, he means that's code for, I cut off the head of Berry Queen of Scots. <laughs> it's been really interesting talking to historians through this series. And I, I found that often when they've written um, a book about someone, they've become very attached to them. I, I'd hesitate to sort of fall in love, but they they very much become champions for them. And it's interesting, you know, we had Tracy Borman on talking about Elizabeth and, you know, I think she does love Elizabeth. <laughs> when you came to write Mary, Queen of Scots, what were your feelings towards her and did they change? I mean, did you come to it because you thought she was great or because you wanted to find out if she was great? I came to it because I was thinking of writing a book on Elizabeth, which I did later in 2015. Right. I'd been in, a, you know, half a dozen BBC films and I'd been in one, or at least the BBC had called me up about something they were doing on Mary Queen of Scots, mm. which wasn't my, you know, it wasn't my film or I was just basically, I wasn't even, I don't think at that time I was even involved in it. But they wanted to find the so-called famous casket letters. Right. These letters that were presented as evidence against Mary by the Scottish lords who were trying to get rid of her letters and poems she supposedly sent to Lord Bothwell and were produced as evidence that she'd been plotting with him to murder Lord Darnley. I mean, it's hard to prove, isn't it? But I think it's fair to say that most historians think that they're forgeries and they still exist then. Actually, it's not the letters themselves. It's the only surviving copies of them. The original letters right. were destroyed, but they're known through copies or transcripts. And most of those are in the National Archives at Kew. And they called up the National Archives uh, and uh, whoever they'd spoken to couldn't really help them and said, um, and rather misleadingly, actually, that um, not only could they couldn't find them, but they think they might have lost them. <laughs> well, BBC had my, you know, it had my number in somebody's contacts book. And so they called me up and I said, oh, Cora, I'll go down for you because I know they've not, they won't have lost them. And I mean, it's just a matter of finding mm. them. Um, and I knew, I mean, I knew where they would be. And I went down there and um, basically when they produced the, couple of volumes I found them in you know like 10 seconds 15 seconds <laughs> and I kept copies of the scans but I was looking through the volumes and I saw things that were literally I mean eureka moments because here was Cecil talking about Mary here was Mary talking to her ambassadors and it was completely different to everything that I'd been teaching you know for the best part of 20 years up till that point and I knew that there was a book in it I then put up you know as you do and it was only like two sides of A4, three sides of A4, mm. something like that. Very sketchy, not the sort of thing you would you know, dare to hand in, certainly today, and probably not even then. I sent it off to my agent. I didn't hear anything. And I thought, well, that's gone to, you know, gone to sleep and won't come to anything. Then about two weeks, three weeks later, I got this call saying, you know, you've got 26 offers in the auctions next week. <laughs> um, Fantastic. I actually gave up my job to write that book. They gave me a life-changing advance. Um, so I did it and I thought I'd get another job afterwards, you know, which I never needed to do because I just wrote another book. So I, but, but all this material was there because what had come down to is in history, a lot of it, I mean, the best book uh, sort of in the interim had been Antonia Fraser's book, uh, mm. Life of Her Nine, I think it was 1968, Life of Mary, Queen of Scots, because Antonia is a sort of brilliant writer, but also she's a great um, understanding of human psychology. Mm. And that was that, you know, and she had sort of, if you like, latched on to some aspects of all of this, you know, quite a lot of aspects of this, and it was it's a much more favourable impression of Mary than, you know, had been given in, 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 in previous works. But, of course, what it needed was the sort of, if you like, the heavy-duty research to really sort of, you know, mm. I mean, people don't believe stuff now until they see it before their eyes or see it quoted or, you know, and see the source references. Or see a mention in Twitter. 
Yeah, or, or yeah. <laughs> and so basically, I just settled down to this, and it became an international bestseller. When we're doing the film, one of the things you have to do is when the premiere happens, you sort of trail around um, various sort of cities and, and you do platforms, you know, with audiences. You know, you start promoting the film as, as much oh. as you would normally promote your, your your book. I mean, that's that's that goes with the territory. Yes. And and then I remember in Los Angeles, somebody got up and said to me, this is absolutely marvellous. This, this is the Me Too version of the Mary Elizabeth st- story. And I sort of got up. It was a smart thing to say, but it was completely, um, if you like, anachronistic, misplaced, because, as I said, this isn't Me Too, which was only 2014 anyway. This is 2004 in, in its original version. Mm. This came out of the sources. This is the documents. You know, this is this is this is these human beings talking to us across the centuries. And of course, not only was Mary, I mean, she was a great talker. She was not just gregarious. She was generous. She was charismatic, but she was a great talker. And she talked Thomas Randolph a lot, who was the English ambassador to Scotland. Uh, and the thing about Randolph was he writes almost Shakespearean English prose. His prose is so quotable and it's so direct. And he was there a lot. And, and he he tells us what ipsissima verba is exactly what Mary says. So you can quote all this stuff. And you almost don't need to prove your case. The materials prove it for you. It just... It just just off the page. There's this modern idea when when we sort of re look at history that's like, oh well, you're rewriting history. You say, no, I'm not. I'm 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 showing you the history of what mm. actually happened. This is what this is what comes out of the documents. But to go back to the which we slightly skipped over, to go back to the question you asked me about Mary's Scottish husbands. Yes. Because she was so incensed at this business with um Elizabeth trying to marry her off to Robert Dudley. I mean, if you like Elizabeth's own discarded um suitor. Yeah, she settled on Henry Lord Darnley, but of course that was a sort of smart move if you wanted to keep your place in the English succession, because Darnley himself had a claim to the English throne uh, because he was right. descended from Henry the Seventh, uh, and so that made dynastic sense. The trouble was that Darnley, as I tell um, a, a lot of my women students, uh, undergraduates, was the sort of bloke whom you'll meet in life who knew how to behave for six months till the ring was on the finger. <laughs> And then the true character was revealed. Uh, and that's exactly so. He was very courtly. He was very ambitious. Uh, he had all the sort of skills that Mary liked. They got on. But of course, the minute, the minute she decides to marry him, he demands to be king. And Mary's not having that. She's a woman of spirit. She's not going to make him. And by king, he didn't mean a sort of joint monarchy. And Mary had perhaps envisaged, well, she, her mistake, her mistake was not necessary to marry him, although she, cause she couldn't have known I mean, let's face it. I mean, I mean, Victoria married Prince Albert, didn't she? After after she was sent on two weeks' approval, something like that. I mean, these mm-hmm. royal marriages are not like modern courtships, where you you know you you not only know somebody, but you probably live with them, you know, for a year or six months or five years or something yes. before you actually yeah, married yeah, yeah. them. I mean, these things were just set up. I mean, she couldn't possibly really have known this. He was probably bisexual. He was um, certainly um, very promiscuous. It turned out he had syphilis probably even when he married her. He was a drunkard, uh, all, all of those things. But he wanted power. He demanded to be king. And Mary had to basically sort of push him aside. And that was a, that was difficult. Uh, and in the end, Darnley got himself murdered. Uh, and, of course, Mary, because she was a woman, got the blame, even though I'm absolutely convinced that she actually had no foreknowledge of it and was not a party to it. But she did then marry Bothwell, who'd been involved in that. One of Antonia Fraser's, you know, most wonderful... Um, strap lines is, you know, tell me that Mary didn't marry Bothwell. But of course, the thing was that in Scotland, there was this tradition and it had happened before. It had happened when after the Battle of Flodden, James IV died of wounds or whatever, or broken heart or whatever you want to. We don't really know what he died of, but he died within days of the battle. A broken man. His widow, Queen Margaret, Henry VIII's, of course, elder sister, took as her protector, the Earl of Angus. And then the Earl of Angus, a little bit later, demanded marriage as the price of that protection. The one noble in Scotland who had constantly been loyal to both Mary, Queen of Scots, but also to Mary's mother, Mary of Guise, was James Hepburn, the Earl of Bothwell, who's an oddball because although he's pro-French and very anti-English, he's a Protestant. Usually it's the other way around. If you're a Protestant, you tend to be a little bit pro-English and and anti-French. But the one man who was loyal to Mary all the way through 
was Bothwell. What's more, Bothwell was one of the only two Scottish nobles who was solvent. <laughs> and he was one of the only two Scottish nobles who could raise a significant army on his own account. So he was a sort of sensible chap in some ways to take as a protector. But then, of course, Bothwell does what all these men do. It's almost like they're a sort of psychological type. He demanded marriage, and then he demanded to be king. And then yet for a second time, uh, Mary, Mary was destroyed. But taking him as, as the protector, that wasn't a stupid thing to do. I mean, really quite the contrary. Okay. It was the consequences of that. But by that time, he had been strong up to this point. But, you know, you, you go through all of that. Your secretary gets murdered. Your husband gets murdered. Your husband's been plotting against you, plotting to take your son, you know, away to France or abroad or something mm -hmm. and to sort of lead some sort of, you know, Catholic crusade against Scotland. Uh, I mean, the guy was deranged. Uh, Darnley was deranged, but Bothwell was not deranged, but he was incredibly ambitious and he was incredibly unpopular. He was unpopular because at the time of the Protestant Revolution in 1559, when William Cecil had sent the Protestant lords, the Protestant rebels, uh, a very large sum of money without Elizabeth's knowledge in gold coins over the border, Bothwell had stolen the money and run off <laughs> and made himself very unpopular. So um, that was just, you know, it, it all became a complete mess. But I mean, you know, Elizabeth then had the right of it. Don't marry these blokes who are constantly eyeing the future and plotting and conspiring. And you don't give them any opportunity at all. You keep them under your thumb because otherwise they will stuff you. But of course, it was easier to say it, but it wasn't so easy to actually pull, pull it to pull it off. And probably it took Elizabeth the whole of her reign to pull it off. Contrary to what a lot of historians think, I think Elizabeth struggled to hold her own in power for the first sort of 20, 25 years. But after in the last years oh. of the reign, I think she got the measure of them and was able to deal with them. When, and there's two questions in one, when Mary comes down to England, sort of flees Scotland to plead with her, many people say, well, that was a stupid thing to do. So my first question is, did she have any other choices? And then the second question is, you know, what were her final years like, all those long years in captivity? I have no compunction in, at all in saying that Mary's biggest mistake after the Battle of Langside, when you know, basically she lost on the day after she'd escaped from um, Loch Leven and flee to England to put herself at Elizabeth's mercy, that was her biggest mistake. She should have stayed put right. because she did have support in Scotland. She lost on the day. Probably the main reason why she lost on the day was that um, the commander of her forces had a tart attack during the battle, which wasn't great for her. But she, she could have lost the day, but still won the war. And in fact, afterwards, there was still a Queen's party in Scotland for so almost sort of barely 15, 20 years after, well, almost 20 years after that, until, until Mary got executed anyway. Uh, but of course, it was very difficult to exploit that from, from England. She also believed that if she fled to England and threw herself on Elizabeth's mercy, the two women, woman to woman, would come together again. They could meet, they could sort something out, and Elizabeth would restore her to the throne. And actually, Elizabeth, yeah. at first, seriously considered that. But she was, she was gazumped, if you like, by Cecil and her own councillors. Yeah, I mean, so what were the pros and cons of, of keeping Mary on the Scottish throne? For, for Elizabeth. Well, for Elizabeth, that you, you, you defended the ideal of monarchy. The idea was very much predicated around the idea that Elizabeth restore Mary to Scotland mm. to rule them in some relationship with James and that James would be a party to this uh, and that he would also agree that Elizabeth could control his marriage, that Elizabeth could sort of, if you like, oversee his foreign policy and on all of those, have oversight, if you like, over Scotland. And, that, and it blew... It blew for the very simple reason that James now, you know, 15 odd and, you know, basically taking his um, throne as a sort of young adult, refused these terms and wrote an absolutely stinking letter to his mother that I will always respect you as Queen Mother, uh, but there's absolutely no way that you're coming back to Scotland to rule jointly with me. I'm the undisputed and sole king of Scotland, you know, and that's, and that's it, matey. That's why the story ends the way that it does, because that's the moment when Mary throws caution aside and starts plotting um, more, you know, if you like, more recklessly with people like Babington mm. in order to escape uh, from, you know, what has by then been, um, is coming up to being 19 years 
as a as a prisoner in England, and increasingly a prisoner under quite close guard. Initially, she was like a sort of royal right. in exile, living it up, you know, luxury, lots of servants, all of that. But as time goes on, a bit like in King Lear, you know, where Lear's sort of servants are taken away and his provisions of vittles are sort oh. of cut back and so on. The bottom line is that when Mary fled to England, she precipitated a crisis in England. And of course, the, the main if you like, manifestation of that crisis was the revolt of the Northern Earls, who were pro-Catholic and pro-Mary hmm. in 1569, where Elizabeth's government was rocked. Uh, and that, and the, the clean-up from that uh, involved massacres and, and killings and, if you like, burnings and laying waste to agricultural land that was worse that had any, that followed anything thing that had followed Henry VIII's break with Rome. It's a sort of, if you like, it's an Elizabethan, um, not exactly war crime, but it's an Elizabethan sort of, you know, if you like. Um, atrocity. Atrocity, yes, exactly so, that that got lost to history, I suppose, because everyone thinks that Elizabeth was great and glorious and benign. I mean, is that also part of the sort of the north-south divide of the... Absolutely. The northern earls wanting their own power base and disliking London and, and vice versa. Absolutely, and that had been true in the Pilgrimage of Grace. There's also an element, there's also an element because there was a very strong rumour that a lot of old nobility in the north, more so than in the south, a lot of the nobles in the south are really courtiers. You know, they've basically replaced yeah. other nobles and they're basically courtier nobles. But the northern nobles on the whole, and some of the East Anglian nobles are proper nobles with lineage. Uh, and it was, it was, there was a very strong feeling, which was also put into print, actually, um, after Mary uh, fled to England, which was that, because Cecil and his chums were, were out to get Mary, uh, they were also anti-monarchic. They were essentially Republicans. Yeah. They were out to get um, Elizabeth too, once they dealt with Mary. Oh my gosh, I mean, there's so much to talk about here. The ramifications are endless, but I feel that it's time to bid farewell to poor old Mary, Queen of Scots. And we got a glimpse there of her son, James. James VI of Scotland, James I of England. And we've seen that he was quite a tough, willful character. And we'll find out more about him in the next episode. In the meantime, John, thank you so much for coming back and helping me make sense of all this. And if any of you lot out there want to explore this further, obviously you must read John's book. If you don't have time, watch the film. So thank you again, John. John Guy. Been a pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Follow or subscribe to the podcast now so you don't miss it when it drops. Willy Willy Harry Stee was written and presented by me, Charlie Hickson, with music by Tom Jenkins and production by Mark Jeeves. Willy Willy Harry Stee, the podcast, is the copyright of Charlie Hickson, 2023.